Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My good friends, hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much for swinging by today. Have you ever been laying in bed dead asleep and the phone rings? We all know that there ain't nothing good waiting on the other end of it when, it, when you pick it up. In fact, that's exactly how I learned of my mother's passing. Well, that's what happened to a young man in Yeager, West Virginia, back in March of 2005. That phone call, as bad as it was, turned out to be not just horrifyingly bad news for one, but an outright mess for another. And the whole thing left the little town of Yeager reeling from it all. Come on in and set a spell. Let me tell you just what happened. When the phone rang in the middle of the night of still half-asleep, Jason Lively heard somebody on the other end tell him Doc's house was on fire. He jumped into some clothes, staggered down the steps, and out the front door he went. Who's Doc? Doc was 70-year-old Dr. Eb Whitley, a high cher highly cherished doctor in Yeager, West Virginia. Now, Yeager is still a small town today of just a few hundred people. Now, Jason knew Doc Whitley well. His mother, Kathy, worked for, as a nurse for Doc for about 25 years. Jason also knew that in the event of a fire, Doc would be in trouble because he was a paraplegic. Doc had suffered a bad fall about five years earlier, leaving him in that condition. Jason went hell-bent for leather for Doc's house. When he got there, he saw cars pull over and fire trucks in front of Doc's house, which sat right beside his medical clinic. Yes, even though Doc was in that condition that he was, he still insisted that he try to take care of his patients as best as he could. Jason saw smoke billing out of the house, and he ran upstairs behind one of the firefighters, and he stopped dead in his tracks when he saw Doc. It looked like he'd fallen out of his wheelchair and maybe dragged himself out of bed trying to get out of the fire. But it was too late, and it was horrible. Jason, now pushing back tears, just left the house. 
few weeks after the fire, the police showed up at a local coal mine where Jason worked. It was payday, and if you're a coal miner, you know that's the day that reminds you of why you do what you do. The police left with Jason secured the back seat. Seems that a fire investigator had went through Doc's house and came to the conclusion that somebody had set the fire that killed her beloved Doc Whitley. And now somebody was going to have to pay for it. That somebody was starting to look like Jason Lively. At least to the investigators involved, it did anyway. Back in March of 2005, at the time of the fire, a deputy fire marshal who'd been in that position for right at 10 months was picked to lead the investigation. I realized that a person can't get experience if nobody will give it to him, but at this point in the investigation, it could turn into a death penalty case, and you'd think that somebody would have thought to double-check the rookie's math on this one. The investigator believed that the fire burned through a couch and a coffee table in the living room and the wooden floor in the bedroom. He came to the conclusion that two separate fires were set, one set with an open flame on the couch downstairs and the other by the use of an accelerant containing toluene or toluene. It's hard for an Appalachian to pronounce, ain't it? But that was doused all over the upstairs bedroom where Doc slept and then somebody struck a match to it. To add fuel to the fire, so to speak, a witness came forward saying that the day before the fire, they overheard Jason's mother threaten to kill Doc after an argument. Now, anybody that's worked in the field can tell you that there's nothing really unusual about that in a nurse-doctor relationship. There was especially nothing uncommon about it between these two. Doc was always telling his nurse that he was going to punch her and she would tell him that if he did that, she's going to kill him. It seemed to be more of a running joke between them than an actual show up and burn somebody's house down with you in it kind of thing. Of course, then there was Jason's reputation that he carried around like a backpack. Didn't do him any favors. By his own admission, he was no choir boy growing up in McDowell County where my granddaddy was born. He would also go out and get into fist fights and was well known to the local law enforcement to start with. His mother and father had divorced when he was a little feller, and anybody who's worked in the medical field can tell you that there ain't no nine to five days. The hours are long, and so Jason got to be a little too much for his mom to handle with the hours she was working, so he went to live with his dad when he turned around 15 years old. Jason's dad died a few years after that, and that's when the chip grew on Jason's shoulder, which turned into a rebel without a cause situation. It might be a phase somebody would go through and soon come out of, but Jason was pushing 30 and still going through it. He seemed to be stuck in a vicious cycle. Reputation put a target square on his back and made made it easy for him to hang a crime like this on him. At least that's what he was thinking as he was being dragged downtown and charged with first degree murder of Doc Whitley. I imagine while he sat in jail, he was probably thinking that somebody will look at something somewhere and figure out that they got it all wrong. But that ain't what happened. Next thing he knew, he was on trial for murder, and it was all scheduled up for him, and yeah, there he went. And during the trial, the prosecutor did just what Jason thought he'd do. He unpacked that reputation right in front of God and everybody, pointing at 
Oh, Jason is the murderer. He also broke out two witnesses who claimed that Jason and a friend who was also charged and acquitted in a separate trial had seen or been at Doc Whitley's house in the morning of the fire. The defense did what they could do with what they had to work with, but they questioned the credibility of one witness who was a jailhouse snitch, while the other witness recanted and claimed that the police threatened him into saying what he said. So, with no real witnesses, only a rookie fire marshal's report on November 21st, 2006, the jury found Jason, what would you think, guilty, of course, of first-degree murder of Doc Whitley and first-degree arson, and they changed his address to something like Moundsville Penitentiary, where he would live out his days. The jury did recommend mercy, which near stock and fine meant that he might have the possibility of parole one day, probably when he reached the age where he'd be wheeled out of prison and directly into an assisted living facility. Nobody wanted to bring up the fact that the reason that Jason was at Doc's house, that he was trying to save his life, or if he did kill Doc, why in the world would he be there at all? Despite being sentenced to life in the Stony Lonesome, all while telling anybody that would listen that he was innocent, Jason figured he may as well settle down and make the best of what he had. He was kind of glad that some of his dad's outlaw mentality had rubbed off on him. He was going to need it where he was at. He was beaten up regularly because he had a ain't-gonna-take-no-crap attitude, that, and that landed him in solitary confinement for a dang near six years straight. Of course, all of that got a little extra attention from the Department of Corrections, too, if you know what I mean. Jason says to this day that he'd get sprayed down for no apparent reason. He would have his legs kicked out from under him regularly and body fluids thrown on him by other inmates and ignored by uh, the officials and the official capacity to stop such things. All of that just failed to compare to the pain he felt for his loved ones outside the prison. He had found that the best way to pass the time was reading books. His family would send him about any book he asked for. He hated being a burden on them and soon realized that he'd been quite the handful before all this ever happened to start with. He would reconnect with the high school sweetheart, Billy Blankenship, when she started writing him in prison. Once she started looking at the Doc Whitley case, she became convinced that Jason was indeed as innocent as he claimed he was. Then she climbed into the middle of his case and decided to try to find a way to fight for his release. That's when a pretty tall order, folks. I mean, once you've been convicted, it's nigh on impossible to get unconvicted, no matter how innocent you actually are. Now, most folks at the time just thought it was a simple murder case as was proven in court and the right man was paying for it. So it was a surprise to Jason when folks started supporting him and questioning his guilt. In fact, he was shocked as the why folks didn't even know him would be supporting him. He'd spent 11 years feeling hopeless as to anything good coming along to help him and had all but given up on proving his innocence. Yeah, that was when all of this started happening, and for the first time since they locked him away, he actually felt that there may just be a light at the end of the tunnel. Jason had already been through setback after setback trying to prove that he didn't murder Doc Whitley. He had 
even gone so far as to gain the support of, well, of all people, the former prosecutor, Sid Bell, who had been the one to put him there to start with. What had changed, you might be asking? There was an article that appeared in the New Yorker magazine that had Mr. Bell wondering if he had prosecuted an innocent man. The article was about the case of Todd Willingham, who had been executed in Texas for setting a fire that killed his three daughters. As it turned out, a thorough independent investigation found that the late Mr. Whittingham didn't set the fire after all. The investigation conducted by a chemist trained at Cambridge University showed that the fire was likely accidental and caused by a space heater or a faulty electrical wire. But despite that, he was dragged out of his cell and put down like a rabid dog anyway. I guess the powers that be thought, well, you got to keep the machinery working or it might rust up or something. Folks, there's a whole passel of prosecutors out there who've made mistakes like this, and rather than admit it and try to do something about it, they double down no matter whose life they ruin or who's put to death for it. And so it's a really good thing to see a man like Sid Bell get involved in a case like this. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. I will be right back. Bell, who's maybe having a few doubts about the conviction himself, hired a Harvard-trained fire expert, Craig Byler, to review the Doc Whitley case. Mr. Byler had also previously reviewed the Willingham case, coming to the same conclusion as the other one, that being that Texas had killed a man over a crime that didn't even happen. Mr. Bell hoped that Mr. Byler's analysis would confirmed that the initial investigation that he he conducted was correct and put his mind at ease. But that's not the way the whole mess shook out. According to Mr. Byler's report, based on the investigation that he conducted in 2012, the fire was caused by an electrical mishap that started below the subfloor. Neither Jason nor anybody else had set a fire to do anything in the Doc Whitley house at all. It was purely an accidental fire that was and that was the end of it. Now, being that the wheels of justice turned slow, it was 2017 when somebody shifted gears and got things rolling in Jason's favor. Andrew George of the law firm Baker Botts and the West Virginia Innocence Project, led by Director Melissa Gigenbach, took on Jason's case. The West Virginia Innocence Project is part of the big National Innocence Network, which was started in an attempt to exonerate the wrongly convicted inmates who sit rotten away in prison for something they didn't do, and what's worse, for a crime that may not even have been committed in the first place in some cases. That's why they're especially interested in the older arson cases because the science of arson investigation has practically done a 180 on what was once thought to be fact, and to the degree that there are a whole mess of cases that need need and really should be reviewed, or maybe even reinvestigated altogether. Ms. Gigenbach, who's been affiliated with the Innocence Project since 2013, handles post-conviction matters in both state and federal courts. She and her law students have successfully overturned convictions for clients who are wrongfully convicted of murder and child abuse, such as what was alleged to be shaken baby syndrome. 
Can you even imagine being wrongly convicted of murdering your own child? I sure can't, I tell you that. She realized from the get-go that overturning Jason's conviction was going to be a good bit of work. But first off, she had to earn his trust. And I imagine after what he's been through, that might not be such an easy job. Ms. Gigginbach and her team were already sold on Jason's innocence before they even went to meet him and explained to him that they just didn't pick up any case and start fighting for no reason. Any case that they took on had to give somebody some real chance to believe an innocent person was convicted. They have to believe that scientific testing and evidence would warrant a post-conviction petition where they would need to provide facts of the innocence of the convicted person before they'd take the case on. Otherwise, they just didn't have a leg to stand on and the judge would probably just laugh them out of court altogether. Once they got Jason settled down and assured him that he didn't need to convince any of them that he was innocent, it was time to get cracking on what they needed to do next. They went over some flaws in the original investigation and involved parts of the fire investigation that was now thought to be just plain hogwash and ignorance, as well as the fact that nobody did an independent analysis of the fire after the fire marshal got done. In other words, as I took it, nobody checked the rookie's mouth, as we said before, especially after what they used as to take as fact fire inve- in fire investigation had, you know, has now been thrown out the window as junk. And then there was that jailhouse snitch testimony, which is always a major red flag to about anybody who looks at this stuff. They usually have a real good reason to lie and make stuff up. Most of the time, there's something being held over their head for their testimony, or maybe it's given for a lighter sentence, or maybe even be let out of jail. It was June 2018 when Jason's lawyers figured that they had what they needed to successfully petition the federal court to appeal and the denial of his previous habeas petition based on his trial attorney's failure to seek an independent fire investigation. So by then, Jason was hitting the 12-year mark behind bars. Now with everything ready to go, they figured that they had just might need something extra to hit the field goal for them. So... Ms. Gigginbach and her team figured that they need to be able to overwrite, refute, or outright refute that the science had used against Jason to start with was just hogwash. Just after the Court of Appeals accepted Jason's position this time, the West Virginia Attorney General's office asked Glenn Jackson, professor of forensic and investigative science, to review the Doc Whitley murder case. Now, Mr. Jackson, his research specializes in ignitable liquid residue and explosives. He jumped right in and went over the reports. Mr. Jackson, as it turned out, agreed with Mr. Byler's findings and the fire wasn't set by anybody and likely originated below the subfloor of the upstairs bedroom. Furthermore, Mr. Jackson tested samples that were took from Doc Whitley's house and concluded charred flooring, unburned flooring, and mattress material from the burned bed, and he, uh, found no detectable levels of any ignitable fluid. That directly contradicted the prosecution's claims that the fire was set in the bedroom with an accelerant. Now, Mr. Jackson found that the toluene found on site was the result of prolosis, or, or pyrolosis, let me repronounce that, 
or the chemical reaction from a burning process and not gasoline or charcoal lighter fluid as was the original investigation. You know, the fact was that charcoal fluids don't even contain an abundance of toluene. Like once thought, traces of gasoline were also absent from the scene of the fire. So Mr. Jackson came to the conclusion that there wasn't extensive fire damage to the whole house to start with. It was concentrated to two rooms, which indicated it was a slow, long-burning fire rather than a short, intense one, and which points to one thing an electrical or accidental origin because the, a big fire comes with a very high temperature which wasn't what happened to Doc's house. Finally, in the Mercer County courtroom just up the road from where I was raised on September 23, 2020 in Princeton, West Virginia, Jason, who was shackled in, in an orange jumpsuit, stood before the court sweating bullets while Judge William Sadler ran through the facts of the case. Now, I don't blame him. If his luck runs like mine does, the judge would find that somebody didn't dot an I or cross a T to his liking and throw the whole mess in the trash can and you know, send me packing back to Moundsville. But even Prosecutor Bell did the right thing and had provided a sworn affidavit to the court stating that false and misleading evidence was presented at Jason's post-conviction hearing. The first one, that is. He admitted that Jason was wrongfully committed or convicted and in the in that affidavit as well. Once the judge put the eagle eye of justice on the evidence, he stated that there was insufficient evidence to prove that an arson had actually been committed to start with. The courtroom was so silent that if somebody dropped a pen, it would sound like a clap of thunder. And the judge then asked Jason if he had any questions. Of course he had had a question, and <laughs> I guess I would too, and it was, when can I go home? And when Judge Sadler said, yes, you can go home, Justin stood up, or J Jason stood up and the corrections officer unshackled him and his mom rushed over and gave him a big hug. Jason was escorted to the basement where for the first time, now in 14 years, he got the heck out of the prison jumpsuit and put on some regular clothes. He then walked outside and around the side of the courthouse to be met by a whole gaggle of his supporters, one of which had put on Ozzy Osbourne's Mama, I'm Coming Home, which was shaking the rafters of the courthouse. Then it was time to head home to his mom's house where he had taken the liberty of somebody had of cooking up a big steak and potato dinner for him. Today, Jason's still waiting on his payday. Well, this time it's been as a result of being arrested on, on payday and all. But this time it's from the state of West Virginia. Since he was freed, Jason is still petitioning the state to give him restitution for the 14 years of the life they flushed down the toilet for him. In the meantime, he's happily married to Billy Blankenship, living in North Carolina and working in construction. Jason says that he has nothing to complain about at the end of the day. He now has a loving wife, a beautiful daughter, two dogs, and, and even bought himself a nice, beautiful motorcycle. Sad thing is that the tragic loss of a beloved man like Doc Whitley was marred by what happened to Jason Lively in the name of justice for a crime that never happened. But it good thing it was found out once the smoke cleared. Hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, please, or follow us on whatever they call it on the media you're listening. 
Join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk about everything Appalachian or anything else you want to mention. Now, I'll be right real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then. <laughs>